you take your seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew this morning, we are going to zero in on chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. I do want to read a couple of places from chapter 5 in order to set that up so we can have we can remember things that Jesus has already said as we take this into consideration this morning you are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust you therefore sorry you therefore are to be complete in your love as your heavenly father is complete Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a joy it is for us today to be gathered on the Lord's day here before your throne of grace. As an anticipation of that day, we will stand before the same same throne on the day of the Lord. As we will hear from you the declaration of righteous and receive the promised hope of vindication as those who are found to be in Christ, And here together with Christ, well done, my good and faithful servants. Use your word today, O God, to continue to form and shape us, that we may hear those words when they come. And may the hearing of those words motivate what we do as we listen today, but also as we enter into that rhythm of your generosity in the humility of Christ. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. 
Amen. How much do you care about what others think of you? How much of your day, how much of your preparation for when you are about to do something, how much do you care what others think of you? As we transition here into not just chapter 6, because we're not transitioning because the numbers are changing, but as we transition from that discussion of the virtues and values of the kingdom, as we, as we move from that discussion of the posture of the kingdom citizen, and we transition now into the practices of kingdom citizens, from the very start of the discussion, Jesus implicitly sets before us one of the most important questions that we can ask of ourselves on a day-to-day basis. How much do I care what others think of me? As one pastor has noted, We transition here into a very searching chapter, a very painful chapter. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, I sometimes think that chapter 6 is one of the most uncomfortable chapters to read in the entire scriptures. It probes and examines and holds a mirror up before us. And it will not allow us to escape. There is no chapter which is more calculated to promote self-humbling and humiliation than this particular one. But thank God for it. Beloved, we have heard throughout chapter 5 that with the arrival of the king, so also has been the arrival of his kingdom. And his kingdom has a set of virtues and values that are to be lived out. They are to be embodied in his people. And all of this in chapter 5 has been, what is the posture? What, what is that orientation of both the, the heart and the behavior of those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And what has been said before us is nothing less than the king himself. How does the king of the kingdom of heaven, how does he live as he is walking and, li- and living and, and ministering within this world? It is, it is a ministry. It is an existence that is defined by the very nature that he has set aside the glory that he is due because he is God in order to take upon himself flesh and to walk in humility 
and to have a life that is marked by service to others, giving himself away to the undeserving, even to the point of death, the death of the cross. The cross is that symbol that that presents to us our king and his ministry and what it means to be citizens of his kingdom. The cross, as we have said, that is the most radical that is one of the most radical turnarounds in all of history. Where the image of the cross was utilized by Rome to symbolize their conquering power. Where the cross for Rome was a symbol of what earthly power looks like and that you should be scared of us and you should you should willingly enslave yourself to us or we will run you over that symbol has been completely reoriented by the work of jesus christ so that the image of the cross has come to embody the all-conquering power of self-giving self-sacrificing love that provides freedom from death Freedom from shame. Freedom from enslavement to a new life in Jesus Christ. To take up this cross, to take up this symbol is to take up its realities and to follow Jesus Christ as his disciples. And this is a call, as we have said, it is a call that is so different from the virtues and values and practices of this world that the only possible explanation for who we are and how we live is that there is something supernatural and divine that is happening within us and through us. Jesus and his kingdom has come to set, as we said, the bizarro world. He has come to set it up aright. And where we live because of the fall in this this world that is counterfeit, that is fallen, that is cursed, that still marks the, the chaos of sin, Jesus is instituting a kingdom that is true, that is eternal, that is permanent, in which God's will is done perfectly because it is a kingdom existence of the unopposed glory of the triune God. Jesus preaching. Jesus' presence is bringing all of this to bear on us as his people so that our righteousness will surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. So that our righteousness will not just be a dumbed down, diminished version of righteousness, so that our righteousness will not just be some externalized version of righteousness, but that our righteousness 
as it is received by, uh, from God through Jesus Christ himself, is a righteousness that is both external and internal. Where we do not diminish God's law, we embrace the fullness of its supernatural character that can only be fulfilled by Christ. And in Christ, beloved, what we are called now is as those who have received this righteousness gifted to us, we are called to practice this righteousness. And from the very beginning here, and in, in throughout Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in setting forth the kingdom of the unopposed glory of God, has done so in the setting of the opposition to that kingdom that is experienced here within this world that is not experienced in the world that is coming. Whether it is earthly governments, whether it is uh, the the the, the people of God who have left behind God because they have left behind his scriptures. Whether it is the dark forces arrayed against Christ. There is opposition. And the question for us is to what degree do we find that opposition within our own heart? Well, one of the first things that Jesus gives to us to help us look into that question is to hold up the mirror before us to ask us, why do we do what we do? The assumption of Jesus is that every one of us, you and me, are tempted at all times and in various ways to do what we do for the praise of men. Now what's interesting there is that this craving for that praise from men, it is, in its very nature, it is a competition with God himself. That when we seek the praise of men because of what we do, and here within the practices that get unfolded is, if you give to the poor in order to receive praise from men, if you pray in order to receive praise from men, if you fast in order to receive praise from men, what you are engaging in is your own, your very own competition with God. Who will receive the glory for what I do? Now, do you recall the words of Jesus from chapter 5? What it means for us to be his light in this world? We are called to, to live to live out what we are. We are the light. 
And that God shines His light in us in order to shine it through us. And we reveal the light of Christ, not merely in the theology we speak, but we reveal it in the theology we live. So that our lived theology is consistent with our spoken theology. But notice, why do we do that in chapter 5? So that people will see God's life in us in order to give Him the glory. Why do you do what you do? And how much of what you do is based upon how much you care about what people think of you. Jesus reminds us that in practicing, and notice here, these are assumed practices. Did you notice here in 6, 1 through 4, he doesn't command us to be generous? Did you notice here in 6, 1 through 4, he doesn't command us to give to the poor? He assumes it. When you give to the poor. Why does Jesus assume this? Well, for a couple of reasons. One, as we noted from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus earlier in the service, this is who God is. God is generous. God is a God who gives himself away. God is a God who creates, who sustains, in order that even the unjust might receive the benefits of his beautiful creation. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. God in his nature is a giving God. He gives himself away. He gives of himself to those who are not worthy to receive from him. By the way, that lack of worthiness began before the fall. We by nature are finite. He is infinite. Even in a sinless finiteness, we were not worthy to receive what is infinite. But God was pleased to condescend and to give himself to us in a covenant. To give himself to us in, in the beauty and in the goodness and in the truth of creation. And our competing for the glory of God here, that is an expression of the ways that, that we will use God in order to get our glory. The calling that we have as God's people is not only to pray and to give and to fast because God has shown us this and that God does it himself. We are to do it in a way that reflects why he does it. Why has God made 
everything. Why is God saving a people for himself? Why does God do what God does? Well, I believe as Reformed people, we have a a question that helps us in understanding that God does what he does because he is worthy of all glory and praise. And what defines his people is that we do not only what he does, but for the same purpose. Beloved, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God tells us throughout the scriptures that he does what he does for his glory and that he will not share that glory with another, but that he does draw other people in to enjoy his glory with him, not to compete for it, but to benefit from it. And so what is the orientation of your heart and the purposes behind what you do, not only just in terms of, well, are you pursuing Christian practices, but why are you pursuing those Christian practices? Why do you give? Why do you pray? Why do you fast? Is it to receive the praise of men? Or is it to enjoy the blessing of God? Now, notice what what Jesus is doing here. He is not pitting receiving something for what is done versus doing something and not receiving it. That's not what he's doing here. What he is doing here is he's asking you, Would you rather receive the praise of finite, fallen man that lasts for a second? Or would you rather live under the eternal smile of your heavenly Father who is pleased with you? Which one do you want? Do you want the immediate something that where you get to see and hear someone give you that attaboy? There's nothing wrong with getting that attaboy, by the way. But do you live for it? Whose attaboy do you live for? Because the promise of God in Christ is that because Christ makes us righteous, that God the Father is free to give unworthy people attaboys. That's what it means to be in Christ and to be declared righteous. It's not just so that theologically we can talk about these, these different theological things, but that we might understand the relational implications of what it means to live under the eternal smile of, a, of an eternal being who is pleased. And who will put his smile upon us. 
how much do you care about what people think of you? And how does that play not only into what you do, but why you do it? Our Lord Jesus Christ has secured an eternal attaboy for us or at a girl. That's what he has done. And as we put the virtues and values of the kingdom of heaven into, into the activities that we engage in, Jesus warns us from up front, you can even do the right things for the wrong reasons. Let's try to hold them together. Now Jesus contrasts a, what a, someone who is giving to the poor in order to receive that attaboy from God versus the one who gives to the poor to receive the, the attaboy from the people around them. And, and he uses what I, what I believe is hyperbole, even though John Calvin tried to come up with, um, you know, Calvin, who is known for his optimism, tried to come up with, with a good description of what's going on, that, that when it says here, you know, as, as the hypocrites are blowing the trumpets to call attention to what, what they're doing, John Calvin tried to say, well, well, maybe what was going on was there was a practice that they would blow the trumpet so that the poor would know that there was, you know, that there was uh, alms for them. And historically, we don't really know that, but... But how about that? Calvin trying to, trying to be positive, right? When I think Jesus is be, uh, being very clear here, he's being hyperbolic. That when you are living for the praise of men, that's no different than walking into a crowd and blowing your own trumpet, which maybe this is where that phrase comes from, right? Look what I'm doing. Put the money in. I remember years ago when I had first become a believer and I was uh, living down in Panama City uh, Beach, Florida and got invited to go to this uh, revival that was being done at this charismatic church and I was like, yeah, this sounds interesting, let's go and I, I didn't know anything back then so it was just, you know, I had no idea what to expect but one of the things that I remember to this day is there was some singing and, and all that kind of stuff. But then they came to the time where they were going to give an offering, and I thought, okay, well, let's, you know, I grew up in church. You know, where are the plates? You know, let's see the plates go by. But no, no, no. All of a sudden, everyone started getting up and filing in the back into, into two, into two uh, uh, single-file columns, and people were walking up to the front where there, was, there, there had been this, this big thing put out on, on the table, and everyone had to walk up and, and put their offering on the plate and then walk back to their seats. And to this day, I'll never forget. I don't, I don't remember her name, but Sister So-and-So, who, who was apparently someone of means, the, the pastor looked at what she put in and called her out on it in front of everybody. 
Now, come on, you can do better than that. But it struck me as so interesting that, that, and you know, I didn't know what to think of it. It just struck me as this doesn't seem to fit with how Christ did things. But that's what the hypocrite does. And hypocrite here, it has that meaning of the person who puts on the mask in order to play the part uh, in a play that is different than, than who they are within themselves. The, the word hypocrite, that's where it comes from. It, it's about the, the actor who would put on that mask and come out onto the stage and, and fulfill a role. That that's what's happening here. And Jesus asks once again, why do you do what you do? Why do you wear a mask and live in public in a way that doesn't match who you are in private in order to get an attaboy from a finite fallen creature? When what I'm asking is that because of what I've done for you, take your mask off and learn to live in light of the attaboy that your eternal heavenly Father smiles over you with for eternity. You see, not only do we compete for the glory of God, but often we express our opposition to that kingdom of the unopposed glory of God by opposing true glory in order to receive its counterfeit. How much of what you do and why you do it, how much of it is based on what you want other people to think about when they think of you? If you're honest, it's quite a bit. We live in a culture right now that, that, that teaches us that the only way for you to have a, 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 um, a meaningful existence is that if everyone around you is willing to embrace what you say about yourself, well, this is what I think of myself. This is who I am, or this is what I am. And, and it is a culture right now that is being broken over this new law, that this new social law that is being established that if you don't accept, embrace, and reinforce what someone says about themselves, you are taking away their freedom, you are taking away their personhood, and you are attempting to enslave them to yourself. Now, 
the nature of this competition with God's glory has, has reached the point now that our culture is being redefined in its relationships around this idea that not only do you live for the attaboy of someone else, but they are morally obligated to give you the attaboy that you think you should receive. And it becomes easy when we get saturated into, into a culture that is going through these kinds of struggles. It gets real tempting to think, well, as long as I don't go that far, as long as I don't, you know, get involved in that craziness, well, then I'm doing okay. But beloved, Jesus knows that even though you are citizens of the kingdom of the unopposed glory of God, he knows that there is still opposition within your hearts. And so we don't base what we are doing, how we're doing it, and why we're doing it on the basis of the world, on the basis of something finite, on the basis of something fallen. We, we, by faith, constantly reorient our hearts and our minds and our wills and the orientation of what we are doing, the motivation for why we are doing it. We constantly are called to, to come back and come back and come back and ask ourselves questions in order to reorient ourselves to living for God's glory instead of our own. And not only, beloved, because God is self-centered and He doesn't want you to enjoy what you want, it's because the only way for you to experience the depths and heights and breadths of the joy and pleasures forevermore that he has for his people, the only way to experience that is by reorienting yourself to his glory. You see, the two are not at odds from God's perspective. We pursue his glory because that is where we find the joys and pleasures of being his kingdom disciples. But the reality is, for different reasons and different motivations, every one of us struggle with living on the basis of what others think. It can be manifest in the fear of man. I'm not going to speak up and do what's right because I'm afraid of a negative consequence. It can also be expressed in arrogance and hubris. Well, I'm not going to listen to anyone else. I'm going to do what I know is right. You see, on the one hand, that looks like polar opposites, but on the other hand, it is an expression of the exact same principle. And the principle to which Jesus calls us here as we transition into chapter 6 is for us to ask ourselves, why do we do what we do? And how much of what we do 
is based on what other people think of me rather than being done on the basis of the eternal, smiling, heavenly Father who in Christ has already declared us to be righteous and will one day say to our face, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, fill us with hearts that long to find satisfaction in you and in you alone. Help us to do this, Lord, in cultivating lives of generosity. Help us, Lord, to cultivate that that right perspective of who you revealed yourself to be as the generous God and, and the calling we have as your people to resemble that generosity. But Lord, help us also as we strive to live the Christian life in a world, in a culture that is opposed to you. Help us not to allow just simply trying to be the opposite of the world to tell us what to do, how to do it, or why to do it. Instead, Lord, please help us and give us the grace and give us the courage And give us the humility and give us the hunger to take up our cross. And not only receive the the power of the self-sacrificing love of our Savior. But in that power to sacrificially love others. Father, bless us that we would be stewards of those blessings and have much to give and to share with others. And Lord, help us to do this, not so that people would think highly of us, but that they would see how wonderful you are and that they would give you the glory. Bless us, we pray, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.